Hey everybody, Coach Jonathan here. This week's episode contains open discussions on sensitive topics, including toxic relationships, eating disorders, and suicide. We feel these discussions are important to have as they bring awareness to issues rarely discussed, but often suffered in the world of sport. We encourage everybody to be an ally inside and out of our cycling community to everybody around us. Welcome to the Successful Athletes Podcast presented by Trainer Road, where we interview successful athletes to make you a faster cyclist. And this week, we have a very special episode uh, for listeners to the Ask a Cycling Coach Podcast. You'll recognize this voice on the other line. It's Amber Pierce. How are you doing, Amber? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Yeah, we've uh, it's been months now since we <laughs> have been trying to make this happen. But uh, with everything as things are, uh, it's been tricky to be able to pin down the time and prioritize this. Uh, but you're actually on, you're on maternity leave right now. And it's funny. I was like, Hey, I know you're on leave. Don't want to ask you this <laughs> because you're on leave. But if you want to, uh, you know, we could absolutely do this. We want to do a retrospective of sorts on your career. Like look back, uh, and for people that have listened to the podcast, you had a swimming career that started at a very young age, went all the way through college at Stanford and then a pivot to cycling. And then you are in the women's world tour and, and over in Europe and racing at that level. And, but there's a lot of stuff to cover. And I feel like if, uh, to pardon the meme reference here, but people probably are like that guy with like the dots being connected on the board with all the newspaper <laughs> clippings, trying to put together your career. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a little bit all over the place. <laughs> so we should do it now and give it the time that it deserves. This is going to be two episodes. We're going to talk about your swimming career this week. And then in a follow-up episode, we'll be talking about your cycling career. Uh, we'll cover a bit of like the, the beginnings of the pivot away from swimming today, but uh, it all builds towards sport in general. Um, and Amber, I want to ask, first of all, so with your childhood, let's go back to that. I know that you started swimming really early, but I don't know what age, and I don't know if you did other sports before swimming. Oh, yeah. Um so I started swimming at a really, really young age just for fun, the normal swim lessons in the summertime, learn how to do the strokes. Um, but I did a lot of other sports too. tried basketball, tried softball, um, so none of which went particularly well <laughs> in terms of skill, talent, or even really enjoyment. Um, in fact, not that long ago, going through some stuff in the basement, I came across a certificate from my my one year in softball, um, and the certificate that I earned that year was most improved outfielder, which <laughs> is another way of saying, maybe you want to try something else, kid. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I tried a lot. Um, and then when I was 10, I joined, uh, a stroke cat class at Lake Ridge in Reno, Nevada, which is where I grew up. And, uh, that was where you, you really learn the proper stroke mechanics of all four strokes. And at the end of that course, uh, the coaches that, that were instructing that class also coached a swim team and they invited us, you know, if, if you're interested to join the swim team and I was all about it, I don't know, something really clicked for me. And I was like, yeah, this sounds awesome. And I, came home and I announced to my parents that I was joining the swim team and they thought it was hilarious. My mom told me later, she thought, oh, this will last a month. <laughs> little did she know how many 4am workouts and long road trips to swim meets lay ahead of her. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was at 10 that I really was, I just, I knew like this was, this was my jam. I really like swimming and I want to get into this. So that was when I joined the swim team, um, and really kind of committed myself to, 
training, you know, as much as one can at 10. And our coaches at that time were really wonderful about taking it slow with kids. <laughs> so mm-hmm. teaching us structured training, um, teaching us, you know, body awareness and focus and all of those things in a way that was really accessible to us and age appropriate. Uh, but, but I got pretty serious about it pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of what I wanted to ask was the competitive because you are an extremely competitive person. If people don't mm-hmm. know on the podcast, that's, that's <laughs> your nature. So when you started swimming, why did you, why do you think you started to like swimming? Was it because there was instantly a competitive element to it or what, why did you actually like it? Why didn't you like, for example, softball, you moved on from softball despite the accolades (laughs) (laughs) and then then you moved to swimming. So why, why, why swimming? Why do you think it caught you? Honestly, it had less to do with the competitive side of it and more to do with just intrinsically loving being in the water. Um, that path to me really, really resonated. And I think as we know with sport, Sport can be an analogy for many other pathways in life, whether that's music or art. Um, And even within sport, there are many different sports. And it's a form of self-expression, self-discovery and growth. But for me, you know, I just I loved being in the water. I really, really loved it. And I loved the challenges. So the types of challenges that come with swimming are the types of challenges one would face in other sports, too. So I like the combination of the two. But I really, truly, intrinsically had a love for swimming when I started. And I think that that was the thing that really fired me from, from day one. And it was what sustained me for a very long time. Not, Mm. not forever, (laughs) but (laughs) a very long time. And we'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah. So with, was competition at odds with that? Cause that's a really common thing that we see with athletes that, uh, pursue their passion into a single sport and they, they continue to focus and they get very, you know, years down that rabbit hole and competition exists at odds to their love for, for the sport and for enjoying it. So did, did, did competition at that point as a kid, as 10, you know, 10 year old kid, did that augment your love for the sport or was it a different aspect that was kind of like a, a a black and white Jekyll and Hyde sort of relationship? hundred percent augmented it hundred percent, not even a question at that point in my life. It was, like I said, our coaches in that program, they put love of sport first. And one of the things that they understood really well at the time, which has taken me many decades to come back around and understand more clearly from a personal experience is motivation is genuinely intrinsic. We, Mm. you know, especially when you find something that resonates with you and something that opens a path of growth and discovery before you, if you don't get in the way of your your intrinsic motivation, it's there for you. And it's one of those things where if you steward it appropriately, that fire will keep burning bright. And so our coaches at that time were really good about cultivating love of sport, love of swimming first, and then building on that as the foundation for okay, you know, how do you improve? How do you get better? How do you learn how to compete? How do you learn how to handle competition? So all of those challenges that were associated with being competitive, they also resonated with me because (laughs) I'm a competitive person, but really it was so much an extension of the love of the sport to begin with. And and I feel so fortunate that that was, that was my introduction to sport because I can't think of a better way of getting into it. Did they do specific things to help you stay on track to that true north of loving the sport when 
looking back, maybe in that moment you didn't realize it, but looking back, perhaps there were moments where you were drifting away from the love of sport and more toward that very focused regimented competition aspect. Did they do anything specific that you can remember that was like making drills fun or giving you time off and letting you focus on something else? Or I don't know, did they do anything that helped you maintain the love of sport in particular? Yes, hundred percent. And woven throughout and not, um, and I would say more proactively than reactively. So they wove in fun and enjoyment. So we worked hard. <laughs> if anybody <laughs> out there is listening and you've been a swimmer or you know a swimmer, swimmers work really hard. So we, you know, as I grew and I started training more and my training load came up and I got more serious, they, they helped guide me through that process. But throughout, we always had goofy fun stuff. We'd take a day off here and there just to play water games, you know, sharks and minnows, or we would, one of my favorites was as later on when I was doing early morning practices, every once in a while, they'd throw a challenge at us, you know, do one mile for time all out. And, you know, if everybody can hit their goal time, we're going to go out to breakfast. (laughs) So (laughs) it was just, it was weaving these fun, surprising elements of joy and building out the social camaraderie and, and building a really genuine network of support within the team so that, I mean, I couldn't wait to go to practice every day. It was the most fun part of my day. And that wasn't to say that I went there to screw around and just, you know, tell jokes and have a good time, you know, but I loved the people who were there. They were, they were my people. I couldn't wait to go see them and spend time with them. And I couldn't wait to go just work my tail off. I I Mm. loved that part of it. And so they were, they were really good about connecting with each individual athlete and understanding what that athlete's challenges were and meeting those challenges. So, you know, they'd talk to us individually between sets or during a set or between swims. Um, and they learned really well how to communicate with us on an individual basis, but also how to build a sense of, group support and teach us how to support each other. And then also just the fun element. So we would do fun things like go up to, you know, being in Reno, we could go up to Lake Tahoe and do some open water swimming for fun. And we did team outings and we had game days and, and I think they had a really good read on, okay, these kids have been working hard for a long time. Let's, let's throw something in here to mix it up and keep it fun. Um, and it, and I want to be careful about how I word that because they had a really beautiful way of making the hard days fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, they were hard. And like I said, we worked really hard, but they, they helped us learn that there's beauty in that effort mm-hmm. and how to experience and feel really fulfilled by giving a hundred percent and learning how to give a hundred percent. That was, mm-hmm. that was one of my really big early lessons was I, I did not know how to do that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So this this feels like um, a coaching environment, an environment where an athlete can grow, where they're more dependent upon self <clears throat> fulfillment rather than pleasing the coaches. Would that be Very an accurate so. assessment as well? One hundred percent. Yeah. What and- do you think they did to help that happen? Because that's, and I'm thinking of this for people that are listening that have kids that are going through. Um, junior cycling programs, which is really Mm -hmm. common these days in the United States, or if you are one of those kids going through that or parents listening to this, you know, future parents, uh, as you are right now, because that's a, that's a hard thing to do. What did they do to make 
you feel satisfied with yourself and rather than being concerned with satisfying them? Mm. That's a really good question. Um, well, I will say they had an advantage in the fact that they were clinical psychologists. <laughs> so ah. they, they had some well-grounded evidence-based training. Um, they themselves were parents. Uh, they themselves were former athletes. So they had a lot of perspectives to bring to the table. And later, after I was no longer part of the program because I'd grown out of it, um, one of my coaches actually did her PhD research on adolescent development and was looking at the roles, kind of the triangle of roles where you have parents, coach, and peers, and the athletes in the middle. And one of the things that she found in her research was the athlete's sense of self-efficacy and self-esteem had less to do with whether or not they were getting positive or negative feedback, but more to do with whether that feedback was consistent from those three sources and authentic. And so it's really important, I think, for coaches to know their role, parents to know, and parents to know their role. And the coach's role is to give that objective, authentic feedback and build trust with the athlete. And what I mean by that is if you're just being positive thinking with an athlete and you're saying everything's great and sunshine and rainbows and puffy clouds and you're awesome, the athlete's going to know. <laughs> like as a, even as a 10-year-old, I knew when I didn't have a good swim. I knew when something was off, but I also knew that my coaches believed in me regardless of the swim. You know, so I guess that would be one of the big things that they really did was they differentiated between the person and the results, the outcomes, the actions, the behaviors. So they believed in me as a person and they could still say, "Hey, I believe in you as a person. We both know that swim was not <laughs> what we know we can expect from you. And then I can, I can trust them to be my ally in helping me figure out why and, and come back and work on the thing that went wrong and to understand that things can go wrong and I'm still okay. And I'm still worthy and worthy of their belief in me. And we can work together on that. And then the parent's role is different because the parent is not there to give that objective feedback. They're not the coach. They're not the expert. But the parent's role is really more weighted towards that unconditional love and acceptance. So I know my parents love me no matter what my results are. You know, my parents might be disappointed if they see me disappointed, but they're more just sad for me being sad, not because of my swim. Like they really couldn't, they're excited about the swimming insofar as it brings me joy not mm. because it's something of intrinsic value to them. My joy is the thing that's worthy to them. And I think that that was a really important distinction. Um, so I think that I was really lucky in that my parents saw their roles really clearly. A lot of swimmers, I mean, it's, it's grueling. You're doing double days. You're doing really early morning workouts. You're working out on the weekends. You're driving to swim meets all the time. My parents never applied an ounce of pressure to me. All of that came from me and they just stepped back and let my coaches be the ones who were working with me on, was it good? Was it bad in terms of my performance? What is it that we need to work on? Um, I think the way my mom put it one time was, yeah, I would just wait to see if you were smiling when you got out of the pool. And if you were smiling, I was smiling. <laughs> if you weren't smiling, then I just figured maybe we need to go get some ice cream after. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good mom right so, there. Yeah, yeah, it was really great. Like my parents were involved enough to show that they cared. They cared about it because I cared. And that was really nice. Like they came to the meets, 
they volunteered to do timing and he's from parents out there. I feel your pain. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, but, but they never, you know, they never overstepped that bound. And that was, that was huge. Cause that, that helped me feel a sense of autonomy and that this was my thing and it could be my thing. And I wasn't going to lose anybody's, I wasn't going to lose anybody's love or affection. I wasn't going to lose anybody's respect. Um, but I could immerse myself in this thing and be safe in that sense that I wasn't, I wasn't there in order to feel loved or accepted. I was there because I wanted to be there. And that's, that's really powerful and and important. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I really understood that on a conscious level until many, many years later, but it certainly made a difference. Sure. As you progress through going, you know, starting at 10 and then working into your middle school years and into your high school years, um, swimming had become something that was, I mean, you were getting scholarships from colleges (laughs) offered to you. You, I would say, I don't want to say that it suddenly became serious. It sounds like it was a trajectory and you were working hard even, you know, in the beginning, but swimming in your teen years, is it fair to say that by the time that you were in high school, had swimming changed for you compared to what it was when you were 10? I would say it changed. Yes, it did. Absolutely. Um, it probably changed every year, but there were a couple of really pivotal points for me. Um, one was really early on. So I mentioned earlier that I wasn't very, it took me a while to learn how to give a hundred percent. So when I joined the swim team at 10, I was very excited. I was very motivated. I wanted to do all the things. So I very dig- diligently showed up to work out and I did everything everybody told me. What I didn't understand was I was going through the motions. Mm. So they'd say swim hundred freestyle, I'd swim hundred freestyle. What I was actually doing was swimming hundred feet freestyle, basically like as easy as a person possibly could. <laughs> like there was, I wasn't really putting any effort into it except for the fact that I was doing it. And that's what I thought you did. I just, I, I was checking the boxes. Right. And so, mm. um, one of our coaches early on, he kind of took me aside and was like, you do realize that you loaf more than anyone else on the team. Right. And I was like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It so, it's so funny looking back on that now, but he sat me down and he said, listen, if, if you want to improve, you <laughs> You have to put effort into this. <laughs> it seems silly saying it like this now, right? But I'm it sure really as a does. kid, as a kid, it, you hadn't thought of it yet, right? No, exactly. Yeah. It was one of those one of those things that it it didn't occur to me that that I would have to like pull harder. That that doing a set would actually you know should feel really difficult, and that I should feel a lot more winded at the end of it than I actually <laughs> do. And so he broke it down for me. and Was like this is you know, this is what it's going to take to improve. This is how it needs to feel. And it, it turned the light bulb on for me. And the second I understood what that was, then I really started pushing and couple that with having wonderful coaches who encourage you to stop and, and appreciate like, wow, how good did that feel? You know, you just nailed this out at this repeat time that you've never done before. How awesome is that? And praising that effort, you know, and, and getting that positive feedback and taking the time to appreciate that and feel fulfilled by, wow. So this is what it's like to work hard. And dang, that really, that really is rewarding. Um, that just fed into this, this really rapid cycle of improvement. (laughs) As one can imagine, you're just (laughs) going from super easy flopping around to 
actually putting in some effort and I improved really rapidly. So, so that was a, that was a huge eye opener for me at a really young age. Um, in, in, in just in a really positive way, it wasn't, he, he didn't, he didn't shame me for it. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was a conversation of, I see that you're not quite putting this together. Let's talk about it and see if we can connect those dots. And as soon as we did, it was just the trajectory of improvement went almost vertical. And I remember pretty shortly after that, right around that time, um, I ended up going to the state championships and winning in the hundred butterfly, um, which is also kind of a funny story. When I was loafing, (laughs) (laughs) we used to do what was called penalty laps. And this, this sounds kind of bad, but it, 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 in the context, it really wasn't. It was sort of like if you were kind of messing around or not paying attention or you didn't do something quite hard enough, you'd get a penalty lap. And a penalty lap was you had to do a, a lap of butterfly without a breath at the end of workout. And I got really, really good oh. at those. <laughs> I got really good at those to the point where I didn't even care about getting them anymore because they felt so easy to me because I had so much practice. Turns out that's how you built so much strength later on, right? <laughs> exactly. Those, yeah, while holding your breath. And then it turns out that um, actually on my very, very first day, I think of stroke class, they said, okay, everybody hop in and do a lap of butterfly. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. And so they said, oh, you just move both arms and both legs at the same time, give it a shot. <laughs> so I did. It was, I mean, I, I managed my way across the pool, but it was nothing like butterfly is supposed to look. So the fact that one of my first big personal victories as a 10 year old was in the hundred butterfly. It it makes me laugh because that was the thing I really didn't know. And then I got really good at because I was goofing around (laughs) and then, (laughs) and then, but, but putting, you know, all of those little lessons put together. And then, um, I remember it was state championships in Las Vegas and there was a, another girl there, Carol Lungard, if you're listening, I still remember, and you're amazing. Um, I, I just was like, wow, this girl is, you know, she's really tall. She's really strong. She's the fastest one. And I ended up beating her by a hundredth of a second, which was wild for a 10 year old. Right. You know, my, my coaches were like, you do realize if you clipped your nails this morning, you might've lost. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's how close we are. Um, but it was, it was this, you know, huge leap forward and understanding of, wow, this is, this is a taste of what can be if you focus and you work hard and if you want this path. And so that was, that was really, that was a really huge thing. Mm-hmm. And then from there, again, our coaches were really good about evolving us in a, in a very progressive manner. So, you know, I didn't start doing even everyday workouts. I think we always had Sundays off for a long time, like until I got, you know, way later in high school and I really needed more training and it was a long time before I started doing morning practices and, you know, they're, they're increasing our volume and the intensity and raise calendar appropriately. So I think, um, so kind of the evolution from elementary school through middle school and high school, I would say by the time I was in middle school, I was very, this was my thing <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was very, very focused on it. And then I started doing double days and, it brought a lot of balance to my life too, which sounds counterintuitive, but getting up early and having a really hard workout was what, what made me able to focus and settle down for the day. And I think that that balance between the physical outlet and then going to school and having the mental outlet of, of learning and schoolwork and studying, um, the two complemented each other really, really well for me. Um, so Mm. that was, that was something that 
it was very synergistic instead of being something that felt like an overload. Like the swimming made me feel more capable in school and then school made me feel more capable in swimming. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Knowing, knowing you, uh, for if you are a very dedicated, focused individual, uh, that also knows how to like march things along and make things happen. I could see, and then coupling that with just typical being teenagers, I could see you being absolutely 100% wrapped around and swimming being kind of wrapped around you. Like all aspects of your life are swimming. Were there any aspects of your life as a teenager that were free from swimming? Like, or was everything that you did driving toward being a better swimmer at that point? It's funny. I think if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said everything is about swimming. Um, Mm -hmm. And that dovetailed with my schoolwork in the sense that, you know, as a, as a swimmer in high school, it's swimming. I'm not thinking about becoming a professional swimmer. I'm thinking, you know, my my dream was the Olympics, of course, but the, the bigger step for me was I want to get into a division one school and get a scholarship. That was the big thing. And so to me, the, the swimming and the, and the schoolwork were, were very, very complimentary because those were the two things that would earn me that. And so that was really what my focus was. Um, and like I said, my teammates on the swim team were, among my best friends. And I I loved going to work out every day and seeing them and spending time with them. But then I also had a group of friends in high school and my friends in high school were all over the place. Um, those friendships were not, not born of sport, but more born of it's that lovely time in life where it's easier to make friends because you're all in the same building all day. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had friends who were into theater, into the arts, uh, Amnesty International, um, creative writing. And so the people that I felt closest with in school outside of sport, those friendships were really not, they, they had nothing to do with swimming, but it was so fun because we, we were all really into our things and it didn't have, you know, there was no sense of, um, in, at that age, I think it's really, really, it's a hard age, right? Because mm-hmm. you really, really want to be liked and accepted. And oftentimes that, that sense of acceptedness comes from some sense of acceptance comes from what you're doing or, or you're in a group because you're all doing the same thing. And it mm-hmm. was really wonderful to have a group of friends where we were all doing different things. So our acceptance of each other didn't really have anything to do with, our achievements or the thing that we were into, it was really just about, Hey, we really like each other as people and we support each other and everything else that we're doing, even if we don't understand it. And we appreciate that, you know, my friend is brilliant on stage or my friend is brilliant in, uh, academic Olympics or whatever it happens to be. Um, and we can be genuinely happy for each other, but it's not the basis of our friendship or why, we like spending time with each other. So I think that that was a really cool balance too. And I think, um, again, very fortunate just to, to have landed with, the, with that group and been able to feel that because it, it made me again, feel free to own my thing. Cause I was really into swimming cause I loved it. Not because that's what all my friends are doing, or that's the thing that everybody else is doing. And I feel like I have to do it in order to feel accepted. Um, it was really, it, it, I felt such a deep sense of ownership with it 
that was supported by all of these different relationships. Yeah. And having the environment that you did in swimming, I'm sure that you still felt temptations to, you know, completely define your self-worth by your results, uh, in mm. the pool, but at the same time, having that support system of, you know, balanced and good leadership with swimming and then having your friends where you can just be you and, yeah. and that's enough. That's really important as a teen. Um, how did you deal with pressure when you were at this point? Because you went from being the one that was, in your words, loafing and then like, you know, and then <laughs> yep. suddenly like, so at that point, like it was like, oh, if I try, I do well. So it's like, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> right. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. And relatively low pressure in that, in that sense. Right. Um, you'd sandbagged yourself and set the bar so low. So it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once you tried, you know, um, but at this point when you're a teenager, you're, you know, a well-known state champion, you're competitive at like, really, I'm sure at that point, were you competitive at the national level, uh, in your yeah. age group? So how did you deal with pressure? Be because this is a, a hard thing for, a lot of kids, when they're teenagers in particular, and a lot of adults, all of us, we still struggle with it, but it's it's hard to live up to expectations for yourself, expectations that are set from past performances. So whether that's coming from yourself, from others, anything else like that. But then also you mentioned your goal being the Olympics and getting to a D1 school. So then you have expectations that are pressing in from that direction, which are like where I want to go or where I should, and I'm saying that in air quotes, should mm -hmm. go. Was that hard for you to deal with as a teen? And do you remember struggling with that at all? Yes. Um, and it's interesting because what I saw, and we'll talk about this more later, but but there was a lot of what played out in my swimming career that I saw play out again in my cycling career. Only the second time around in cycling, I had the benefit of hindsight and having learned all these lessons that I could then apply to cycling. And one of the patterns that I see... I saw in myself, and I do see this as, as common in sport in general, is early on, it's it, it really is as simple as try harder, achieve more. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's this really beautiful kind of linear relationship is like, oh, wow, look, you really do get out what you put into it. But as we all know, the further in you go, the harder and harder those those little improvements are to come by. And, and you'll work for years to get a 1% improvement, right? And and those 1% improvements may not even translate to race results for a really long time. So the nonlinearity of the progress starts to come in a little bit later. So you have this like early honeymoon period where mm -hmm. everything feels as it quote unquote should be right. Like, Oh, I work <laughs> hard and look what I get out of it. And it's, it's all sunshine and roses. But of course that doesn't last because the higher the level you get to, the harder it becomes. And you really start to feel pressure. Even if no one else is putting pressure on you, if you've stacked up a few state championships, then people start to expect you to win. And mm -hmm. I think for a long time, I dealt with that really, really well. Um, again, with the guidance of my coaches, because we were really focused on process goals and enjoying the journey and the joy of the training and the preparation. Um, and we were really about the mindset of, Hey, did you prepare the best you could prepare? And did you give everything that you had on the day? Okay. What, I mean, what else can you possibly ask of yourself? It's not always going to go the way that you want it to. Right. Um, so that focus really helped me navigate those waters for a long time. And, you know, in that time, 
I won a lot of state championships. I won some junior national championships. I set some junior national records. And all of that felt like a very natural extension of the process. Mm. Um, I, I surprised myself, pleasantly surprised myself. But at the same time, once having you know maybe gotten one of those results, for example, it really felt like, oh, yeah, like I, there was some part of me that knew I could do that all along. Um, and, and I will say one of the things that helped with that was when I would hit those big benchmarks, like when I, I remember setting that record at junior national championships, my coaches were really great about sitting down and, and asking, you know, so, so what did it feel like? What was going on in your head? And it was interesting because one of the common denominators of all of my kind of high points during that time was my mind really felt not empty, but so present in every single one of those performances. I remember the first time I set a record for junior nationals, I remember being on the blocks and it's, it's, you know, they, they walk you out to music (laughs) and you're standing behind the block and it's this awkward, you know, balance of like warm up enough, but then you have to go to the ready room and then they march you out to music and you don't get to pick the song. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're there behind the blocks and it's, you know, your whole, with swimming, it was very different from cycling in the sense that we only peaked in our program. They only peaked us twice a year, once for short course, once for long course. And so all of these months of prep and all of those morning workouts and all of <laughs> everything was going into a handful of swims. Um, so it really did feel like a lot of pressure, but I remember that first time climbing on the blocks and, you know, my body was anxious and everything was anxious. And as I climbed on the blocks, all of the anxiety fell away. And I just, in my mind, it was one phrase. It just said, you know what to do. Hmm. And that was it. And it was like, with that statement in my mind, I just was there and I was so present in the race and it was one of the best performances of my life. And then it was kind of similar. There were a couple more times where I won junior nationals or I I think there was one other event where I did set a record. Um, and it was very similar. And up until that point, it felt very, I felt very capable of handling it because I didn't feel a lot of external pressure and I didn't even feel a lot of internal pressure because I, I still felt very much like I'm growing, I'm learning, mm. I'm working hard. And this is, you know, I'm seeing the fruits of the results. And it was around that time, I want to say maybe the year of long course, when I set the record at junior nationals in long course, um, in the, in the medley, I, that was a point where suddenly I started to feel like, wait a minute, <laughs> I've been on this upward trajectory. Am I getting to a point now where the only place to go is down? And then this fear started to creep in a little bit. And, um, years later I talked with one of my coaches and we were, we were reminiscing about this particular time. And she remembered me mentioning that, you know, man, it feels weird. I feel like I'm on top and now the only place to go is down. And it, that makes me laugh <laughs> so hard now <laughs> looking back on that. Cause I just think I wish, you know, I wish I could go back and just shake myself by the shoulders and say, Oh honey, you are so far from the top. You've got so many levels. It can keep going up. Right. (laughs) Right. And I think, but we, us listening to this, everyone can relate to that. I bet because, um, when you first start racing bikes and you win your local Tuesday night series and you did it three times and you won your C group, right? Like you were Mm -hmm. like, honestly, I mean, pro contracts, I'll probably have to turn them down. Cause I have a job, you know, like, it's like <laughs> you feel like you're on top. And then 
you know, a, you don't even think about all the the countless steps that you can continue to take. <clears throat> but that's an interesting perspective shift. I think we all tend yes. to do that in different aspects of our lives, or where we quit being present, like you said, and we start our focus gets distracted and it gets pulled in the other direction. You know, how yes. how did that start to be? How did you move forward from that point? Not well, honestly. Um, it was, and my my coaches were really wonderful, and and they could see this happening, and it became a real internal struggle where I started imposing this pressure on myself that I'd never imposed before. Because before I was just I was so present, I was so in the process. I just I loved hanging out with my friends. I loved working hard. It was it was great. And now suddenly I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm a record holder. I've got to, you know, now I got to go to not junior nationals but nationals and. And if I did this at junior nationals, then by golly, I better do, you know, even better at nationals. And of course, as this was happening, I was in high school. So I was marching ever toward applications for college and, you know, you know, putting myself in a position to be recruited, for example. And then it was suddenly all of these things that had been a little bit more abstract, like in an abstract sense, I was like, yeah, I want to go to a really good college and I want to get a scholarship. And, you know, that was always the dream. But all of a sudden it was like, oh no, that's now very real and it's knocking on the door. And where are you in relation to that? And I really started piling all of this expectation onto myself. And it was genuinely for me again, like my parents were just happy if I was happy. My coaches, you know, were just there to support my intrinsic motivation. And I started really spiraling with this and it made, it made life really hard. It made life really hard. And I think, um, we talk a lot about on the podcast about growth versus fixed mindset. And I think no one's ever a hundred percent one or the other. And I think for a long time I was really leaning into the growth mindset and then getting these results and suddenly feeling like, okay, now I have this level to live up to then the fear creeps in, which is that fixed mindset of what if I'm not, what if I'm not really good enough? What if I, I don't actually have this? And then I really started doubting myself and I still performed at a very high level. I still worked really, really hard, but that self doubt and that thought that maybe, maybe I had tapped out this fixed amount of talent mm. was really terrifying. And it started to really sap the joy, um, out of what I was doing. And, and I say this just, it was very subtle. So on the whole big picture, I still loved going to work out. I loved my team. I loved mm -hmm. the process. Um, I was being recruited, so it was really validating. Um, I was being recruited by, you know, some of the top programs in the country and the coach from Stanford came out and visited and watched me do a workout and had dinner with my family and was trying to talk me into going to Stanford. Like what? <laughs> Pinch me, right? Like that's like, <laughs> how can this be? This is such a, you had built for years for that. That had to have been, yes. yeah, like you said, so incredibly validating. And I know external sources of validation can always be tricky because they're fleeting, right? And they can change, they right. can go away. But I can't imagine what that must have felt like. I mean, that's, that's just the pinnacle, right? Like that, right. that at that point in your life, that was had to have felt amazing. It really did. And so that's to say that as much as there was this, there was a very subtle shift happening in my mindset, which I can see really clearly now with hindsight, you know, at the time it was, it was much more confusing, <laughs> but, 
but you know, I, I don't mean to paint a picture that like, oh, I, I hit this high point and then it was all downhill from there. No, it was a very subtle, slow kind of underlying tone shift, right? That, that didn't happen right away. It wasn't like night and day. And in the bigger picture, things were, things were going really, really well. So I was still loving what I was doing, finding a lot of success with it. Um, and, and really, really excited for the future. And, and, but, but there was this like little dark undercurrent that was Mm -hmm. slowly seeping in. And that, that shift definitely happened kind of as, you know, during those four years of high school. Yeah. And then from those four years, and you mentioned the Stanford coach coming to visit you, uh, you ended up selecting Stanford, right? Like Mm -hmm. what went into you selecting to go to Stanford, uh, versus the other programs? I'll be honest. I tried to be really open-minded through that process, but, um, (laughs) very silly story. When I was in preschool, I asked my mom, what's the best college? And she's from California. So she said Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. As one does. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so in my mind, honestly, like since being a little kid and I don't know what prompted me to, to ask her that it wasn't like, Mm -hmm. it was, it was again, I think a lot of people look at somebody like me and would assume that, you know, oh, your parents must have put so much pressure on you. But my parents didn't push. I mean, like no pressure, like all of this came from me. I mean, years later, um, I was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame for for my high school and we were going back through old paperwork. And my dad has boxes and boxes and boxes of the 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 results sheets from every single swim meet I went to. And I had no idea that he had all of those. I had no idea, but he, he cared so much in his own way and in a way that was unobtrusive and not applying any pressure to me, you know? And it was just like, it cracked my heart open to see it because it was just so, so wonderful that he cared so much, but also that that never translated to his setting an expectation of me. He was just so happy to be involved. Mm -hmm. Um, it was really wonderful. So, it, the, the, the setting my sights on Stanford was really like a hundred percent from me as a little kid. And it was always stuck in the back of my mind that that's where I wanted to go. Mm. And I was, I was very fortunate to be recruited by Berkeley, UCLA. I knew I really wanted to stay West coast because that's, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I grew up on the West coast. I was born in California. That was sort of where my heart was. Um, I did look at, I think the program in Auburn at the time was really top-notch Auburn and Michigan always have very, very strong Mm -hmm. programs. So flirted a little bit with those two, but really in my heart, it was always Stanford. (laughs) So that was when that became like a realistic possibility, it was like, yeah, that's a dream come true. Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. From then that dream had years to build, uh, throughout your whole life. Um, but, but this had to have been totally different. So, I mean, first of all, you're at Stanford, uh, it's known for also, you know, it's really known for its academic prowess as well. And for being yeah. a school where, you know, smart people go, but they don't go to loaf, smart people go there to work. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and it's, and it's a lot of work. And then you also have to take care of yourself and do your, do all of your laundry and get food and cook <laughs> your food and do all these things. How did, I mean, let's, let's dive into the, to the, how swimming evolved for you as a college student now, because Mm -hmm. while as before you had the support of your family system, these familiar coaches, uh, the familiar teammates and the people that you'd be racing against at all, like these different races. And suddenly now you're 
at this collegiate level, you're taking care of yourself. Your family is distant. Your coaches are different. Your teammates are different. Uh, you're swimming against different people. I would assume mm-hmm. everything has changed for you. So how did swimming change for you? Was it constant or did you find swimming also changing amongst all the other things? It changed completely. And, and you really hit the nail on the head there, the support system. Mm. You know, I had this amazing support system in high school, which I, again, like I, I feel so lucky and grateful for that, for that environment to grow up in that environment. It was just phenomenal. And I didn't have it when I went to college. And I mean, all of those people were still there, but not in the way, you know, I I wasn't seeing those coaches every day. And the coaches in college are very, very different. You know, they are working with a very different value proposition than an age group coach, an age group coach in swimming, their job is to develop you as an athlete. That's their only job. And to make sure that you're having fun doing it. I mean, if they're a good coach (laughs) in college, it's a business. And I did not understand that. I did not expect that. I kind of thought, you know, I had stars in my eyes. Oh, the Stanford coach. And, you know, I thought, of course, it's going to be more of the same. I just thought it would be an extension of the same support and the same positivity and the same focus on process and the same appreciation of fun. Mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) No, (laughs) it got very serious, very fast. And one of the things I don't think I really appreciated right away, but translated to how the coach was interacting with the team was the money. There's money involved. Now I'm on scholarship. This isn't, something I'm doing for fun that my parents are paying for me to do anymore. This is, this is, you know, there's real money on the line here. The, the university expects the team to perform in a certain way. They expect the the coach to get certain results. Um, and there, that was a whole new layer of pressure that I, I didn't expect. I was totally unfamiliar with. And then, like you said, you're in a completely new place responsible for, a host of things that you've never necessarily had to be responsible for. And in addition to that, your accustomed support network is gone. And now suddenly it's (laughs) trying to make friends with other kids in the dorm. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm, I'm gone most of the day because I'm up at 5am to do my morning workout. Then I'm in classes and then I'm going back to the pool for afternoon practice. And, um, (laughs) yeah, we, uh, the NC2A rules, I think, I don't know the exact limit now, and they may have changed this, but at the time, the NC2A said you are not allowed to train more than a certain number of hours per week. So I think I think the limit was like 20 hours or something like that. You're not, uh, yeah, you're not allowed to train more than 20 hours a week. We trained sometimes like between 30 and 40 hours a week. Wow. And all uh, of the extra... Your- with your course load and everything else that you're taking as well as a full-time student at Stanford. Yep. Yep. And then, but, but the extra quote unquote air quotes was quote unquote optional, Uh, right? Which got it, you know, (laughs) you're on scholarship. It is not optional. It's not optional for anybody. Cause if Um, you skip it and then other people aren't skipping it, then you're likely to lose your scholarship. I mean, you're just not going to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as terrible as that is, it makes sense. Right. I don't know that that, you know, I'm not sure that that would be the case. I don't know if they could take your scholarship away from you, but also there's the team element, right? Like you don't want to be the one person on the team who's the weak link. 
you don't want to be the person who's loafing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You, you know, if you see everyone around you, quote unquote, carrying their weight, you want to do the same and you don't want to let anybody down. And so it was, it was very grueling. And again, you go back to the dorm and and you want to hang out and interact with people and, and really make friends and have that free time. But I mean, you still have to get your homework done you still have to sleep. I mean, most mornings I'd be getting up when everybody else in the dorm was coming in to go to bed and you just felt like you were missing out on such a big part of, of college life. So you're trying to still be involved in that part, but then train 40 hours a week and go to classes. And then you still have to study, right? It's not just about going to classes and taking the boxes. You got to study and you got to do your homework. And it was, it was overwhelming. It was so it was so much. And add to that, that my freshman year was, I I went to Stanford fall of 99. So we were coming into an Olympic year. So all of my teammates who were sophomores, juniors, and seniors were preparing for the Olympics. And so I walked into a situation which in and of itself was a much higher pressure environment than we would have had for another four years. Right. Because all of my collegiate teammates, you know, were there, for at the time it was Pac-10. We were there for Pac-10 championships, NC2A championships. That's our focus as a collegiate team. But as individual athletes, all of my teammates were training for the Sydney Olympics. And many of them had a very real shot at gold. One of them did win gold. And and so the the level of pressure that was just a, a constant element in our training was really, really high. And so to come from this really super warm, fuzzy, supportive environment into like, okay, we have people who better get Olympic medals because this reflects well on Stanford and, you know, we better get NC2A results and we better do this. We better do that. And stepping into that, um, at the same time as losing a support network and trying to handle a massive workload and training load was, it was, it was just, it was debilitating. I I just, yeah, I, I really started crumbling pretty quickly. Yeah. You mentioned that when you were in high school, you had this, this kind of like yin and yang balance and interplay of early morning physical workout. Then, then you had throughout the day, you would have all of the, the more cerebral focused studying and classwork and everything else that you did. And it seems like now it feels like it's overwhelming because then there's many other components that are coming toward it was swimming. What need was swimming fulfilling for you at this point? And maybe that's a hard question to even answer. I'm not sure, but in it's college, what was it doing for question. you? Kind of grounded you when you were in high school, but what was it? doing? Yeah, now? it really grounded me in high school. And I think very early on. So before I even went to Stanford, my freshman year, we had a, a preseason training camp at the Olympic training center with the swim team. And so we were getting to know each other and, um, and it felt, I thought it would mean that I would automatically have this group of best friends <laughs> <laughs> and that would make my transition so much easier. And I loved the women on that team. Absolutely love them. Phenomenal women. Um, but the nature of your relationship with your teammates, I mean, we, we were working really hard and we were training really hard. So it wasn't, we weren't really socializing in a way that made it feel like a really core group of friends. And one of the things that they did was, um, made sure that athletes 
were assigned to dorms with non-athlete roommates to help us assimilate. But that actually kind of made it harder because you didn't have time to socialize with your teammates as much. And you also didn't really have time to socialize with your roommates (laughs) either. Um, and, And I think that the pressure that I felt in every training session, seeing everyone around me who was like, everyone around me is training for an Olympic gold medal right now. And I knew that I wasn't quite at that level at that point. I hoped that it was something I might be able to achieve in the future. Um, but it was a lot. It was, and it wasn't, there was an element of seriousness and there was an, uh, a framing around the training that was sort of like, if you're, if you're laughing and joking and having fun, you're not being serious. And if you're not serious, you're not going to be good. Mm. And I don't think that Individually, the athletes. For you. Yeah, exactly. I don't think the individual athletes bought into that ethos, but the the coaching and the the kind of the environment, the structure we were in, especially with the Olympics on the horizon, was very much like that. And I felt like I felt like I shouldn't joke around. I felt like I shouldn't be having fun. I should be getting in and working hard. And so the social escape and the the escape into joy and fulfillment um, really wasn't there for me the way that it was. And the workload was so much higher. So whereas before I would do some weight training and the most of my training in the pool, now we were doing tons of pool training, but we were doing dry land circuits. We were doing mm. bonkers like Russian powerlifting programs in the weight room. We were doing yoga and Pilates. And I mean, it was just training stacked on training, stacked on training. And, and with each of those things, I didn't know how to do Pilates. I had to learn how to do Pilates. I was, you know, the dryland circuit was a whole new learning experience. Um, completely different way of training in the pool. The, the way that we were training and we were approaching volume and, and, and the whole, everything was different. So we talk a lot on the podcast too about cognitive load, whereas cycling had been this very Zen meditative out, you know, out, um, escape for me. Now it was this very intense, stimulating, I have to be processing at high speed because there's huge cognitive load and I'm not feeling like I'm catching up with that. And then I'm going from that to classes where I'm being challenged intellectually on a level that's very different from high school and there's huge cognitive load there. And then I'm going back to the dorm where I don't really know anybody. So now there's mental and emotional load, right? That Uh you're not going and hanging out with my high school friends who've known me forever that I can just really relax and be myself with. Cause they get me. You're going back and you're having those. So what dorm are you in? Where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like all the, it was, it was so much. And, and I, I'm not alone in this. This is a really, really common experience for athletes in college. And, um, and I think that losing swimming as an escape was huge because that, like you said, in high school, that brought so much balance. And now nothing felt like balance. I was, I felt out of my depth in the classroom. I felt out of my depth in the pool. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. I, like I can tell you're going to be a parent real soon, Amber. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah, it was, um, it, it took a very, very different place in my life and it became, you know, at first it was, okay, this is no longer an escape. And then it became, more and more stressful, um, yeah, as, as time trap went on. you actually. Yeah. So this, this seems like, like a shift from learning or from a shift from going from internal self-fulfillment and validation 
to going to external sources of validation because that's just the way it was. And it was the, what, like all those external pressures were just placed on you all of a sudden and really like a jarring shift to be able to deal exactly. with. Exactly. And when, then, yeah, sorry, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and then if we tie that back to, we talked about that little dark undercurrent that was becoming, mm-hmm. that was, you know, bubbling up in toward the end of high school. And that undercurrent was this self-doubt of, maybe I'm not actually good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, now I go from being in a program where I'm respected for who I am. I'm also one of the better swimmers in the program, you know, big fish in a smaller pond. And then I jump onto a team where everyone around me is an Olympic contender, medal mm-hmm. contender. I mean, talk about imposter syndrome and talk mm-hmm. about that little dark undercurrent now is starting to feel pretty validated, right? Like mm-hmm. if I thought I wasn't good enough before, now I have all of this mounting evidence for, wow, look how much better all of these other people are around you that you're watching every day. You're watching them be so much better than you every day. Mm-hmm. And that doubt, it just started feeding that doubt. And then, okay, you didn't sleep very well last night. So you get up to go to morning practice. So you're not really at a hundred percent and guess what? You're not going to perform that well in practice. And, oh, Hey, that's going to make you feel like maybe I'm not that good enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. And then you go from that morning practice, poor night of sleep. Now you're kind of down about not a great workout. You've lost more sleep because you've been up really early for morning practice. You go straight into a block of classes where you're really struggling to focus and pay attention and engage at the level that you normally do. Plus it's more challenging material. And now suddenly you're thinking, geez, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And then you're walking around this campus where you're talking to people who are like like piano prodigies and kids who've, I mean, they've already won awards for genetic discoveries. <laughs> I mean, right. You know, and so you're looking around, you're going, man, I suck at everything. Mm-hmm. And so that little undercurrent that had started continued into college and just started to snowball. Because there was a lot of quote unquote evidence supporting you don't belong here. You're not that sure. Um, And and again, it wasn't all of a sudden I just thought, oh, I suck. But it was just it became it became a current that I was constantly fighting to try to maintain belief like, okay, no, I'm just going to go to workout. And if I if I if I do my workouts and I work hard, I'll get stronger. I know I can do that. And it was the, the fixed mindset pushing back against the growth mindset. And really mm-hmm. with, with all of that momentum, it made it really, really hard to, to fight back with more growth mindset. And it got harder and harder as time went on. So this, uh, all of this sounds like it compounds. And like you mentioned day after day, the lack of sleep comp, just as the lack of sleep compounds, right. Then everything else is also probably adding up. Um, and you've mentioned this to me that it, it really came to a head, where mm-hmm. you are at your breaking point. Can you describe yes. what you were like at that point and what were the different things that were contributing to that? Perhaps even the coaching mistakes that were made or the mistakes that you made in that point. Cause I think that this is a, an important thing to, to cover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there were a few standout events that took place. So one was I was training at a level that I had never trained before, which was to be expected. I, I wanted to level up when I got to college, but I don't know that it was progressive in the way that was, that would have been more effective for me. Mm. Um, but 
all this to say that toward the end of my freshman year, I had a really bad shoulder injury. So adding to imposter syndrome was this, you know, now I'm, I'm in pain and I can't actually perform at this level. And so I ended up having to get shoulder surgery, which thankfully we had access to like one of the, the guy who did my shoulders, the guy who did the shoulders for all the 49ers. So I was like, well, okay, that's, he's good. If someone's going to do my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the guy. Yeah. Um, so the surgery went well and, but that was also a huge setback that as we all know, setbacks are just hard in general, let alone in an environment where you're really feeling like you're just struggling to keep your head above water. Um, and I started coming back from that injury pretty well. Like my fitness started coming around and that was, I think my sophomore year. Um, and I really, I fought hard to hang on to growth mindset there. I, I wouldn't have called it that at the time. I didn't know that that's what it was, but that was kind of, I was, I was just kind of like, okay, just trust the process. You know, you, you had a physical injury, trust the process. You can get back. And I started really, my times in, in practice started really improving and coming around and it was really great. And then suddenly I hit this plateau. I mean, like pretty significantly. And it started to mess with my head big time because here I'd had this really nice trajectory of improvement after my injury. I finally felt like, you know, I had a good place to live on campus. I had a group of friends. I was starting to get a handle on my classes again. Um, you know, things felt like they were moving in a good direction. And suddenly I was just getting slower and slower and slower in the pool. And it felt like the harder I worked, the slower I got. And it was just, it, it was breaking me mentally because it, I, I couldn't understand it. And, you know, it started to, again, it starts to erode that confidence. And I started thinking like, man, I, you know, maybe, maybe this is it. Maybe I've hit my limit and, and I really can't get any better than this. And started really spiraling and getting very depressed at the time. Um, and then it turned out that a lot of the girls on the team had tested positive for mononucleosis which I know everybody calls this the kissing disease, but I really, in this, in this instance, I really believe we were just being overtrained. And yeah. so our immune systems were walking a razor's edge all of the time. And you're living on a, the Petri dish that we call a college campus. Right? <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, it was not that surprising. And once I realized that, you know, maybe, maybe I should go get tested for this. So I went and got tested. Team doctor said, yep, you've got mono. I was so relieved because I thought, okay, you know, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't an intrinsic failing on my part. There's something wrong and we can do something about it. So I, I was so, I was thrilled <laughs> to get that test result because it explained everything. Yeah. And I thought, and all that, okay. all that doubt, the, the dark undercurrent yes. we talk about of imposter syndrome and everything else. When you find out that, <clears throat> because once again, you felt like you were getting back on the horse, so to speak. And then suddenly all that comes back because you've plateaued and you feel like the harder you're getting. So, so it's much more than just a simple diagnosis, right? This yes. is something that is actual validation that, Hey, maybe I am enough and maybe yes. I am okay to do this. Um, it's much more than just that diagnosis. Yeah. I can, I can exactly. understand the relief that you would have had. Exactly. Did, did your, did you, how did your coaching staff react to that? <laughs> so I want to say that we had, a we had, four different coaches at the time. So we had our head coach and we had three assistant coaches and we had the team doctor. And so the team doctor diagnosed me and I thought, okay, this is great because now I can, cause I, you know, I was feeling, I was making up all kinds of stories in my head about what the coach thought of me and what everybody else thought of me. And I just thought, okay, finally, like 
you know, I can take this back to the coach and explain everything. And so I, and, and it's an official diagnosis from the team doctor, you know, this isn't something from the student health center. This is like the team doctor in the training room. And so I, I scheduled an appointment with the coach and, and like a real appointment, you know, not just we'll have a side conversation on the deck. I, I like set up an appointment and I went to his office and I was imagining, I didn't have a close relationship with him. He was very high level. Um, and like my freshman year, he was very, very closely involved in training the Olympic athletes. Cause he had, he was one of the Olympic coaches. So we hadn't really developed a close relationship, but I kind of thought this could be an opportunity to have that, you know, and I, and I, mm-hmm. I still naively thought that I could go in and find some empathy and some support and, and maybe find that ally that I'd had in my high school coaches of somebody who would help guide me through this, you know, healing process. And I remember it was probably, it was sometime in the fall, I walked into his office and he barely glanced up at me. And I said, um, you know, I I talked to Dr. So-and-so and it turns out I've got mono, you know, what, what should we do? And I, and I was, I was genuinely scared. I mean, I was relieved at the diagnosis cause it was an explanation and I was relieved to be able to offer that to the coach as, Hey, I'm not loafing. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, there is something real here and maybe we can do something about it. Well, and, and mono and with- too, for people that don't know that that could be as much as 25% of your college mm-hmm. career. Yes. Just wiped out when really in these beginning stages, it should be so crucial for you to be building right at that yes. point instead of being completely flatlined and brought back. Cause that's what mono can take months, even, even years for certain yes. people to, to deal with and to, to work through. Right. And if it can do permanent organ damage, it's a very, very serious illness if not taken seriously. And, and some people get it and get over it and it's no big deal. And some people can get it. Like you said, it can last for years. You can have permanent problems, um, especially with like liver inflammation. I mean, it's, it can be very, very serious. Uh, so it's not something that anybody should ever take lightly. And, Mm -hmm. and it's absolutely, like you said, it could be something, it could be career ending. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I was standing in front of his desk, you know, scared, hopeful, you know, seeking, seeking connection, seeking reassurance, something. And without even making eye contact with me, he just said, well, I'm going to need you in shape for Christmas training camp. (laughs) End of, end of conversation. And I remember just, I kind of stood there like thinking, and, and then he kind of looked at me like, what, you know, what are you still doing here? And I walked out and I kind of, I was left to just interpret that (laughs) like, okay, I guess I need to get fitter for Christmas training. And so I just kept showing up to practice the way that Mm. I had been. And I continued to work hard and continued to get slower. And that continued to erode my confidence. Even though now I knew I had mono, I felt like, well, I have to be in shape for Christmas training camp. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't, and he didn't seem to care that I had mono. So maybe I shouldn't care that I have mono. Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being overly dramatic about this. Maybe, you know, I, I shouldn't be as concerned about this. Maybe I need to toughen up. Right. Mm. Um, all of those narratives that we hear in sport were really just whirling through my head. None of which were showing any compassion for the actual physical ailment that my body was trying desperately to fight. 
um, with no help from me or anyone else at that point. And it just continued to spiral like that. I felt worse and worse, um, physically, and that deteriorated how I felt mentally. I was struggling more and more with classes because I was so tired. Um, it got to a point where I was wearing a heart rate monitor just out of curiosity and literally getting up out of bed and walking across my apartment, my, my heart rate would go over 130. Like my body was not okay. I was not okay. And finally one morning I just, I hit this breaking point and I just like, I can't do it. I can't get out of bed. I can't go to class. I can't go to work out. I just can't do anything. And so I stayed in bed and I managed to sleep most of the day. And I rallied that afternoon to get to practice. And the coach took me aside and he let me have it. He said, where were you at practice this morning? I said, I feel terrible. I couldn't get out of bed this morning. I'm really sorry. I I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't even go to class. And he just looked me dead in the eye. And he said, if you miss one more practice, you will no longer have a scholarship. And I, wow. Okay. And as we said before, I mean, it literally, I mean, my life flashed before my eyes and it's easy to look back on that now and be like, Oh, Amber, there's so much more to life than, you know, your college degree or, you know, Mm -hmm. swimming. And, and, and I, I see all of that now, but in that moment, that was my whole world. It was literally everything. I mean, since preschool, I had in mind that I wanted to go to Stanford. I had worked so hard for my whole, everything had been pointed at being at the school, doing what I was doing. And frankly, I needed that scholarship because Mm -hmm. we couldn't afford for me to continue to go to that school if I wasn't on scholarship. So it literally was a a threat. It's an enormously expensive school. And then yes. you're finding that it's so expensive to stay in the school with all of the the effort and all of everything else that goes into it. And then you have this huge debt placed against you in the form of, of a chronic fatigue illness that's, that's dragging you down. And then you have this. I can't imagine if you didn't already have enough pressure on yourself, then at that point, you get all of it added on as an ultimatum. What, how, did you, how did you deal with that? Because... At this point, you were felt so physically completely drugged down that you didn't have mm-hmm. the strength to do it. Did you do the same thing of toughen up, and I'm saying this in air quotes here, and just carry on? Or what, how did you move forward from that? I tried. I tried to toughen up, um, and I was just breaking down. I, everything was breaking down, and it was, a, it was a snowball of the physical, the mental, and the emotional because – physically i couldn't i i couldn't do daily tasks i was at my physical breaking point going to training every day um which of course translated into courses i was falling behind in my schoolwork because i was so tired and i couldn't focus um i didn't have energy to socialize so i was becoming more and more closed off from what network i did have there um at the time i was i had a an apartment i was living alone and i, I mean i had great friends on campus but i i didn't have the energy to schedule something to go see somebody or even to make phone calls and reach out or you know so i was closing you know i was becoming more inward focused and a little bit more closed off you know, feeling bad about myself every time I went to a workout, feeling bad about myself every time I went to class and everything just snowballing into this really dark place. And now with this threat over my head of, Hey, if you don't toughen up and just do this 
everything you've worked for your entire life is gone. Mm. And I, I really tried. I went through the motions. I kept going to practice. And I, I finally just hit another breaking point where one day I couldn't get out of bed. And, and you can imagine like how much worse it must have gotten for me to yeah. not drag myself out of bed because knowing that this threat was over my head. And, um, but I couldn't. And for, I think it was, I think it was like three days. I didn't leave my apartment. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't go to the grocery store. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't do anything. I just, I laid in bed and like basically got up to the bathroom, got up to get a bite to eat and would go back to bed. And I just, I was in such a horrible physical place, but it was even darker mentally and emotionally because it had really triggered the snowball into a really deep depression. And and one of the misconceptions I think about depression, and there are very there are different types of de- depression too. So let me just say that, and I'm going to use the word kind of more generally. But um, there are different reasons that people have depression, and it manifests differently for a lot of different people. But one of the things about it is, it's not about feeling sad. It it gets you to a point of apathy where you really feel numb, and it's an absence of emotion. And that's where I really was. I got to this place where like everything everything in me was so broken. I didn't have the capacity to be scared, to be sad, to be anything. I just, I could hardly be anymore. And I remember waking up on the third day of that. And I actually felt a little bit better because I'd slept and I'd given myself this break because I had to, because I literally had no other choice. And the first thing I realized kind of as my brain came back online from this absolute stupor that I had been in was, well, now you've done it. Everything's gone. Your scholarship's gone. There's no way that you're going to walk back and see your coach and he's going to do anything but pull your scholarship. Like Mm. he told you if you missed another practice and you just missed three days and it's done. And I just had this, it was literally like I was in this, foggy stupor of illness. And the second the fog cleared, because I'd had just like a tiny bit of rest. The first thing I felt was this absolute soul, soul cracking panic of, I just lost everything. Mm. I just lost it all. And then I, I, I panicked and I thought, no, no, there's gotta be a way. I, I gotta, there's gotta be a way to save this. Like maybe, you know, if he understands how sick I am, maybe if he understands how sick I am, you know, he'll, he'll understand why I couldn't come to practice. And then I thought, well, (laughs) he knows I have mono and that wasn't good enough, right? That wasn't a good enough justification to mispractice. So how can I make him understand how sick I am and so that he'll understand why I had to mispractice? And, and this is, you know, what I'm going to say next, I just want to put the caveat here that my mental state was deeply altered by this physical illness and this snowball effect that had been happening over years and, and then mm-hmm. accentuated by this particular situation. It was apathy, right? I, I cared deeply about this outcome because it was the soul level thing that like my whole life had been built around. Um, and I thought to myself, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a bottle of aspirin and I'm going to make myself so sick that I'm hospitalized. And then he'll understand mm-hmm how sick I am and that I had to mispractice. And in my head, I was so deeply altered and so depressed that I didn't, 
think about or care about the potential consequences of that. It made perfect logical wow. sense to me to the point where like I got in my car, I drove to the drugstore, I bought one bottle of aspirin, I came home, it was very methodical, very logical. I took the whole bottle and I went to bed and I just thought, and I felt better about it, which mm. this is, you know, I'm saying this like, this is not something anybody ever wants to do. Trust me. Um, been there, done that. Don't. If you ever get to a point where you feel like this makes sense, it is massive red alert. Reach out to somebody, call somebody. There's a suicide national hotline. Like, don't do this. Mm. Um, I did this. I went to sleep and about two in the morning, I woke up in the worst pain I have ever felt in my whole life. My body was on fire. My ears were ringing so loudly that I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't walk. I crawled to the bathroom. Um, I could barely crawl to the bathroom. And then I started, then I, then I got scared because now the survival instincts kicked in and something very primal prompted me to, to call poison control. <laughs> like mm. That was my brain. I mean, everything was really just so skewed. And so that was, you know, the survival instinct clicked in. So did I call 911? No, I called the poison control hotline <laughs> and very, very calmly explained to them my symptoms. And they're like, well, did you ingest anything? Oh yeah. By the way, I took a bottle of aspirin and they were like, get to a hospital right now, get to a hospital yeah. right now. And I was in no state to drive. So thankfully I, I literally crawled across the hall and knocked on my neighbor's door and he saved my life. I, I just, I was literally on the floor on my hands and knees and I said, I need to go to the hospital. And he didn't ask me any questions. He literally like picked me up, carried me downstairs, put me in his car and drove me to the ER, which was thankfully close. Right. Cause we were on campus mm. and I got to the ER and it was alarm bells everywhere. They threw me straight back into the ER, um, had me drinking charcoal, um, put a catheter in me. Um, and in the meantime, like it was, it was so surreal. Cause I was, I was hardly like, I was not mm. totally registering everything, but I was in enormous pain, enormous, like I can't even whole body on fire pain. And what happened was the aspirin actually crystallizes in your system when there's enough of it. So I was passing crystals of aspirin. So oh. what, feels like passing a kidney stone every few minutes with this catheter, which was extremely painful. And then I'm trying to drink this charcoal because they're trying to figure out how much I've had, how much has actually gone through my system. Can they pull, can they pump my stomach? But it had already gone through my stomach. And I remember I was just laying there and one of the nurses actually, she was panicked and she had so much fear on her face. And she looked me in the eye and she said, why would you do this? Why would you want to end it all? And that was the first moment that I realized the consequences, the mm. potential consequences for what I had done. I, cause genuinely in my mind, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to off myself. I wasn't trying to commit suicide. I wasn't, you know, that wasn't the, the goal, but I was so apathetic and so depressed and so in this dark skewed place that I hadn't thought past that. I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me. And even if it had passed through my mind, it was you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't mm. concerned about it. And that was the first moment that it really hit me that this could be it. This really could be it. And I, 
this was the consequence that I had glossed over. And I really got scared. And shortly after she said that, and shortly after I realized that all of the alarms went off and there was like this huge surge of people coming in the room. And I just remembered I was in pain and all the lights started going out in my vision, right? I started to get tunnel vision and people were yelling. (laughs) And I just had this moment where I was like, it was an epiphany that I had that that takes a long time to say out loud, but it happened in a fraction of a second. I just had this moment where I realized this is it. This is the ultimate decision. You either decide to fight and live. And if you make that decision, you take everything that comes with it, all of the crap, all of the hardship, all of the things that you don't like, you have to accept that you may have lost your scholarship. You accept everything that comes with that or not. That's it. That's the choice. What are you going to do? And in that moment, it was just, it, it was obvious. I was like, no, I, I I don't, I don't want the lights to go out. I don't, Mm -hmm. I will take life and I will take everything that comes with it. And, and I remember as that, like the darkness was closing in, I just, I, in this one instant, all of that was so clear to me that no matter how bad it gets, it's still life, you know, and, and it's worth just it. in that moment. Yeah. In that moment, it was just like, Oh, okay. I can handle what comes. I can handle the, you know, the bad things I can handle those things. I, I, but I want to live. I want, I want a chance to be able to handle those things and I want to live. And I just, I remember just fighting so hard against that darkness and thank God I didn't, you know, it didn't go that way. Um, but it was, it changed me in that instant forever. I mean, Hmm. I've struggled with depression on and off since I struggle with anxiety, you know, all of those things. But in the back of my mind, I always, that moment comes up and it's just like, yeah, sometimes you have to deal with stuff and it's, it's not awesome and it's really hard. And sometimes it doesn't resolve itself quickly. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, that this is the question. This is the question that's being posed to you, you know, at any given moment. Mm. And so I was, I was really fortunate that, that I came through that. Okay. Um, so I stayed in the ER overnight and sure enough, the first person to come and see me, uh, was the swim coach, the last person that I wanted to see. (laughs) Oh gosh. Sat on the edge of my bed and told me inspiring quotes from a book that he was reading called how to become a millionaire. And it was so, it was so incongruous with this profound realization that I just had that had just instantly crystallized some major perspective on my situation for me. And I was, it it was, it was just surreal. It was very surreal. And as a result of being hospitalized because I'd taken a bottle of aspirin, they admitted me to the psychiatric ward because they wanted me under observation. They didn't want to send me home if I was still suicidal, even though I wasn't. And I was trying to explain that to people. It's really hard to convince people that you're not suicidal when you've just taken a bottle of aspirin. Mm. Um, so I ended up on the psych ward for two weeks, which was another huge dose of perspective. Um, I think it was the best thing that could have happened to me. I needed, I needed to pause and I needed to collect myself and I needed to, process, you know, what had just happened. And I also needed to step back and make a plan for moving forward. Um, and it was, it also just, 
I met people who were going through incredible hardships. I mean, we were doing group CBT classes and there was a woman in my class who she was older. Um, her husband would get up every day of their 30 plus year marriage and go to work, but not before locking her in the closet. So she was locked in the closet all day while he was gone until he came home and he would unlock the closet and let her out so she could make him dinner and, and clean the house. And meeting people like that who were struggling with those kinds of challenges, you know, it put so much into perspective for me and it kept bringing me back to that moment of like, yeah, this is life, you know, and Mm. and what you're dealing with is one thing. And then this is life, what other people are dealing with. And, and, you know, she's still choosing life, you know, I mean, she, she, she landed there for the same reason. She, she did attempt suicide, but here she is after the fact and she survived and she's choosing life, you know, and, and it was unbelievably powerful and it gave me a level of empathy and appreciation for mental health in general. Um, you know, Mm. and, and understanding like what people go through and, and then part of the agreement for my discharge from that was to, um, work with a psychiatrist and a sports psychologist. And so, um, I met with the psychiatrist and we agreed to give, you know, talk therapy a chance. And then we would revisit whether or not I needed some medication. So I went into talk therapy and worked with a sports psychologist and she was phenomenal. And, um, it was, I needed it. I I, I had long needed it, but Mm. it took getting to this point of crisis to, to be able to like, to understand that I needed that support to reach out and to get that support. And, um, it was a really long, <laughs> a long process back, but she was, the other thing about depression is it's really hard to get up in the morning. It's just, it's mm-hmm. real. It's, it's, it seems like such a normal thing to just get out of bed and get dressed or take a shower. And that became extremely difficult. And so I made this little deal with myself, um, as I was healing that if I could get out of bed, showered and dressed and out the door by 9am, which was a monumental task, um, I could go get myself a little mocha at Starbucks. Like I could reward myself. And so I had this little routine where I would, you know, occasionally I would manage to do it. And then I'd go and I'd stand in line at Starbucks to get my mocha. And this whole time I was really, we, we still hadn't really worked through, you know, obviously I wasn't going to go back to swimming right away because I needed to handle this and we hadn't really resolved what was going to happen there yet. But I, I really was, or no, I'm getting the order mixed up a little bit. So pretty shortly after working with a sports psychologist, she just flat out said, you, you cannot go back to swimming. This is, mm. this is a toxic environment and you're not going to be able to heal and handle that at the same time. Like you need to remove yourself from that situation in order to heal. And, um, so she, and at that point, obviously I had been diagnosed with, uh, the official diagnosis was major depression and, um, it, it's a disability. And so mm-hmm. as a result of, you know, and so she attested that as a result, result of participating in my sport, I incurred this disability and she connected me with a disability resources lawyer. And, um, I was, it's called a medical release. So I, I forfeited the rest of my NC2A eligibility, but at that point it was like, yeah, <laughs> this is, this is like, this is a little more important. Right. And so 
I had a medical release, which meant that I didn't forfeit my scholarship um, and I could work forward through this healing process. And so I was working with a sports psychologist. We were working through this healing process. I was occasionally managing to get out of bed by 9 a.m. in the morning. And, and one of the big things in the healing process, and we've talked about identity a lot before too, was, wow, okay, so I've just had this huge dose of perspective. I've just gone through this really dark period. I'm, I'm trying to process all of this. But now on top of that, what am I? Am I an athlete? Yeah, am I a swimmer sure. anymore? You had always introduced yourself as like, I'm Amber Pierce and I'm a swimmer, right? Like yes. that that's <laughs> like what you were. And suddenly that identity that you had, it's full dissociation, right? Like it had mm-hmm. been taken from you amidst this chaotic storm. You suddenly were no longer that. Yeah. Was that liberating though? Or was that challenging? Maybe perhaps both to suddenly feel like I am what I am. On the one hand, it was liberating in the sense that the liberating part was feeling safe from not having to, um, not having to put myself back at the mercy of that toxic environment. Like Mm -hmm. I felt safe from that toxic environment and that, that felt a little bit liberating because now it was like, okay, now I have a safe space in my life to heal and to work Mm -hmm. on this. Um, but I felt lost in that space because I had always anchored so much of who I am on being an athlete and being a swimmer specifically. Like we kind of laughed in in freshman year. There was, you know, there was like three or four standard questions that you ask all of the freshmen when you meet them, right? Like, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you and do? Then one of the, <laughs> you know, which dorm are you live in? And one of the questions that we would always ask each other was, you know, what's your thing? Kind of like, what was the thing that got you in here? And, mm. you know, for some people it was music or art or whatever. And mine was always like, well, I'm a swimmer. And that was, that was my identity. And unfortunately that also kind of contributed to that snowball of imposter imposter syndrome because a lot Mm -hmm. of people would hear that like oh you're an athlete oh you're just one of the jocks so you're Mm -hmm. you're not even smart you just got in because you're a dumb jock Mm -hmm. and one of the misconceptions about stanford is they have very high level athletics programs but in order for my coach and i learned this later when i was on the other side of the recruiting process in order for a coach at stanford to recruit an athlete you have to get that athlete's transcripts and submit them to the admissions office and they actually have to be admitted unofficially, like they have to pass a screening of the admissions office before the coach can actually start to recruit them. So they have to pass academic muster even to be recruited. And mm. I didn't have that in the, in my back pocket at the time. So that, that was another little extra yeah. challenge to <laughs> sprinkle on everything else. Knowledge that would have been but... helpful yesterday. Sort of situation. <laughs> no, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so here I, I land on this other side of it and I, I don't have to be in that toxic environment anymore, but I feel really lost because, you know, I don't have a special thing anymore. There's nothing, you know, what, it, there's nothing else that makes me special anymore or worthy mm. or, you know, and, and navigating that was really hard. And I remember one morning at the Starbucks getting in line for my mocha. So I'm already feeling kind of proud of myself because I got mm-hmm. dressed that morning and I got outside before nine. There was an elderly gentleman standing in line behind me and he, he said, you have got to be an athlete. What do you play basketball? And I, and it, it almost broke me. Cause I was, I was in this very fragile state to begin with, but it was just like it, he, he called me out 
on that mm. thing that was that was really the, the the really fragile thing that was really throwing me for a loop at that moment. Yeah, it was and raw. And I said no. Yeah, very raw. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I turned around and I, you know, it it, it really caught me and I just it's hard to choke the words out, but I said, no, no, I'm not an athlete anymore. And he heard the anymore. And he looked me just dead in the eye, complete stranger. And it was just like, he spoke straight to my soul. And he just said, oh no, once an athlete, always an athlete. Hmm. Complete stranger. What an angel. (laughs) What an angel that man was. Yeah. Truly. it, It just, all of a sudden I, it, it was, I don't know, like weeks of therapy in 30 seconds, <laughs> like just, it finally occurred to me that, Hey, yeah, you know, I might not be on the swim team anymore, but that doesn't mean that I haven't dedicated myself to this sport my whole life, that I can't still express myself as an athlete in other ways. Um, and that I can't embrace this as a part of my identity for the rest of my life, no matter what shape it happens to take on the day. And it, it was it was such a healing moment and I never got the guy's name. Like just a total random stranger in line at Starbucks. But I take that with me. I mean, and I go back to it sometimes when I start to feel mm. imposter syndrome or like, you know, even now sometimes I'm pregnant and not training as much and definitely not, you know, hitting the marks that I usually hit. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't mean I'm not an athlete. And I, and I, mm-hmm. I run into so many athletes. I've run into women all the time who've, I mean, they've done like multiple Ironmans and they hesitate to call themselves an athlete. And it's like, come on. Yes, of course you're an athlete. <laughs> you, don't, right. you don't have to hit like a certain standard to be considered that you don't have to have an Olympic medal to consider yourself an athlete. I mean, there's all different ways that we participate and we can express ourselves as athletes in sport. And, um, it was, it was just, it was really, really incredible. And it was a, Hmm. it kind of helped accelerate my healing process at the time. Yeah. And, and helped give you what you needed to actually start a new chapter and kind of move forward. Yes. Um, It it was a, an acceptance that I could, I could be like, Oh, I can be at peace with this. And if I can be at peace with this, I can, I can move on to something else. I feel like this is a good stopping point before our next episode, um, Ooh, where we yes. talk about <laughs> your next chapter, um, yeah. which, uh, this cycling. So Amber, uh, <laughs> we'll, we will hold this conversation. I want to keep it going, but we've also taken up a, a lot of your time. So, um, <laughs> you have, you have nesting and many fun things to do here, um, on maternity leave. So, uh, we'll let you, uh, go and then we'll catch back up with you for episode two. And if you're listening to this now, um, I hope you've enjoyed it so far and stay tuned. If you're listening to it in the future here, then chances are episode two is already available and you can just flip right over and listen to that. If not stay tuned, it will be coming soon. So thanks a bunch, Amber. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks everybody. And thank you, Jonathan. Yeah.